Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, Episode 4, Opportunity Zones. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today's episode, our guest, Stephen Bunch, explains the ins and outs of qualified opportunity zones. Stephen is a CPA and managing partner of the accounting firm Spore Bunch Franz. This is one of the most significant changes to the tax code for real estate investors. It can be intimidating, but if you do it right, you can see significant tax advantages like tax-free appreciation on a qualified investment. Here's episode four with Stephen Bunch. Today we have Steve Bunch with Spore Bunch and Franz. He's a partner at a large accounting firm. Steve, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm and kind of what you guys specialize in. Sure. So we're a local firm based in St. Pete. We do specialize in real estate developers, real estate investment companies. We have a bunch of other specializations, obviously, but uh, because of our concentration, those types of clients, we've been very active in this qualified opportunity zone opportunity that just came up. So excited to talk to you guys about it today. Yeah. Can you start out with just a, a brief overview of what a qualified opportunity zone is and, and kind of the impact that has on investors? Yeah. So a qualified opportunity zone is a zone that is designated and there's several maps out there. Uh, it was designated by virtue of the statute. Um, they picked certain economically depressed zones and they drew a map and said, if your business or you have property located in this zone, you'll be eligible for certain tax benefits. And generally speaking, those tax benefits are you'll get some gain deferral as you invest in those properties or businesses within the zone. And then upon exit, you'll get additional tax benefits. And it's all about, from a tax policy perspective, trying to get people to invest money in these individual places where there might be the need for some more commerce. And I think, what do they call them? Where there's places where there's not many grocery stores, they call them um, food deserts. Right. So things like that, where they're trying to incent investment in certain areas to create more capacity and more infrastructure. Right. And that's a great overview. Like who can benefit from this new tax code, the new tax law for qualified opportunity zones? Well, I mean, this is a real estate podcast, so obviously real estate, it's a, it's a home run for real estate guys. I'll, I'll jump to the other side for a minute and say that it's even, aside from real estate, there's business owners that can really benefit from this. So we'll talk obviously more about real estate, but quickly on the business owner side. If you own a business in a qualified opportunity zone and it's a growing business and it's a business that you happen to sell some period in the future, you could really benefit from this uh, greatly. But, you know, a lot of this also is very much a real estate play in terms of developing real estate or even developing real estate for other businesses to come occupy. And then you get sort of a double dip where you can be the guy that has come in and, and done build a suit office space and have a company come in and take advantage of the benefits while you take advantage of the benefits at the same time. So from real estate, um, there's a lot of reasons why this could be preferential to a 1031. There's some reasons why it may not be as preferential as a 1031, but this is sort of another another avenue for real estate investors to keep rolling their money and building their portfolio. Right. And so can you explain a little bit more about how the QZ itself works, kind of like mm-hmm. what the format is and how an investor can take advantage of it? Yeah, so let's say that you and I have uh, $2 million of Apple stock. 
and we bought it for $10,000 way, way back in the day. So we have, you know, a roughly $2 million gain. The way QOZ works is if you sell a piece of property, it can be real estate, it can be stock, it can be a business, anything that generates capital gain, you can use those proceeds to invest in a QOZ business or a QOZ fund. And what happens is the gain that you generated to put that money in the fund gets deferred. So you and I go sell our Apple stock and we generate a $2 million gain, round up for easy math. We generate a $2 million gain. And we decide that we found a piece of property in a QOZ fund that we want to buy and improve. We can take that $2 million, invest it in that property, and we don't pay any income tax on the gain we just generated by selling our Apple stock. And as a matter of fact, that gain is deferred all the way until 2026. And at the end of 2026, we have to take that gain into income no matter what, even if we continue to own the property. But that gain is deferred for seven years. On top of that, if we do it this year and we hold it for seven years, 15% of that gain is excluded. It goes away. So our $2 million gain gets a 15% haircut. So now all of a sudden it's a million seven in gain. And again, it gets deferred for seven years. Now let's talk about the property. You and I bought a piece of property, right? Let's say that property appreciates to $4 million by 2030. When we sell that property, we have no gains. So there's a double dip. The first one is the, the property you sell to purchase QO zone property or business, that gain gets deferred. And then the actual property or business that you purchase, when that sells, if you hold it for 10 years, there's zero capital gain. So it's a deferral up front and an exclusion on the back. It's a really good opportunity. Wow. That's, that's pretty powerful to have that tax deferral and the discount on your capital gains, as well as get like tax-free appreciation on the property. Yeah, I mean, as opposed to a 1031, there's going to be a day of reckoning, right? You can keep rolling 1031s forever and ever. And a 1031 like-kind exchange, hopefully that's not a, a term that's um, new on this podcast. But in a 1031, you can buy a property sell it and roll your money into another property tax-free. That's what a 1031 exchange is. But at some point when you sell all your property, you got to pick up the gain. Yeah. The qualified opportunity zone investment is not that case. You sell the property on the back end or the business on the back end. As long as you hold it for 10 years, you pay no gain, no, no tax on any of the gain. So in that respect, it's a bit better. Can you walk us through some investors that might already have a property in a property zone? Like say, for example, you purchased it last year or two years ago. What's the clarification on how to get that involved? Obviously, you wouldn't be purchasing it, so you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't be able to count any money towards that purchase. But I'm guessing there's a way you put that into the Opportunity Zone fund. And as long as you make the fund money that goes into it, as long as investments are made into that property, although it's not counted as the purchase price, it can still be part of the opportunity fund. Is that correct? Yeah. So let me let me back up a little bit and I'll answer that question. But first off, the qualified opportunity zone investment idea began January one of eighteen. So you know we're having this discussion in nineteen, but it goes back to any property purchased after twelve thirty one seventeen is eligible. But let's use your example. Let's say that you already own property, but it is in a qualified opportunity zone. 
Well, the way you could do that is you could solicit additional investors by creating a fund and saying, I've got this great piece of property and I want to improve it, but I don't have the capital to do it. So I'm going to start a qualified opportunity zone fund to hold my investment and come tell my investors, hey, if you've generated capital gain and you put that money into my fund, I can have this certified as a qualified opportunity zone fund. And now all of your investors are going to get that preferential treatment. Because you didn't come in um, either after 1231.17 or with capital gain generated funds, you would not be eligible for the QO zone property treatment, but those investors are going to substantially increase the value of your property, and you're going to economically benefit from that versus having to find a commercial bank or strategic partner that might not be as favorable on their terms. So if you bought that property in, let's say, 2015, and it's a qualified opportunity zone, um, you know, there's a lot in the regulations that hasn't come out yet to really sort of put some clearly defined rules behind this. But at this point, I would say that you're probably not eligible, but you are eligible to create a fund and attract other investors in. And certainly if you come to me and say, I need a million bucks to do this great mixed use project here, I'd say, well, yeah, I want a pref return of 9% and I want this and I want that. And you go, wait a minute, this is a qualified opportunity zone. You're going to get great tax benefits. Now I'm starting to backpedal a little and say, okay, Maybe I can lower my pref or I can give you more favorable terms or, because on the back end, I'm not going to have any tax consequences. So, And you've got to do the work as the owner to make sure that it certifies as qualified opportunities on investment each year. So I'm thinking, you know, if you've got the property, if you spend the money right, you follow the rules, I'm going to get huge tax benefits. So I want to be on board and I want to be on board in a way that makes it easier for you. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but... No, it's a great answer. I'm glad you were so specific about it because it does bring up another point. So if you did, as you said, they established this, uh, I guess the rules started January 1st, 18. However, they didn't really map out the zones until later on in 18. I think that mm -hmm. varied by state by state when it, when it actually went into, when they actually had the outline done for each state. Um, but mm -hmm. as you said, if you purchased it after January 1st, 18, you'd still be eligible, but I'm assuming a lot of people that might have done that, they wouldn't have gone ahead if they bought it in March of 18. They wouldn't have set up a fund at that point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I'm actually going through, this is not a real estate play. It's a company, but I'm going through right now with someone who's not even my client. Uh, we're going back and amending their tax returns to qualify them for a qualified opportunity zone because the business has been around for several years but they had a half dozen new investors come in in 18. And all those investors came in with capital gain generated money. And so now all of a sudden they're going to go back to their investors and say, hey, guess what, guys? We're going we're gonna to certify as a QO zone business. And the money you invested in our business is now going to be eligible for this treatment. And so if we, first of all, the gain that you generated to put your money in, you're not going to pay tax on right now. And if we ever sell this business 10 years down the line, it's going to be tax-free. And I think, by the way, they're probably going to go to them and say, got any more money you want to invest? <laughs> but, but, I mean, so there's going to be a lot of that, of looking at returns. Looking, I mean, even the tax returns that I just reviewed, um, you know, in the last several days and weeks, I kind of had at least our local um, OZ map up. 
and I'm trying to see, okay, are they in an OZ? Should we talk to them? Have they got any new investment? Do they need a new investment? So even if you have that company and they got no new investors, we said, look, if you're trying to look for new investors, you need to be out there saying we're in an opportunity zone. And, you know, this is a huge tax benefit for you guys to invest in us. I mean, not only if you believe in our, in, whether it be the real estate or the product or, or the service or whatever, but not only if you believe in the company, but there's big tax breaks for it. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. So I, I guess what you're saying is if it, that's a business, but if it were a property, you could amend your taxes and go back and say that that property you purchased after the first of 18 may mm-hmm. be able to qualify as, a, as an opportunity zone fund. Yeah, for all the accounting nerds out there, logistics are that there is a box that you check on the return and there's a form you fill out. So you say, are you electing to be a qualified opportunity zone fund this year? Because 18 is the first year. And so you check that box and fill out the form and say, here's what I'm doing. And you kind of put the IRS on alert that, you know, this is XYZ holding company that owns land in the building in a QO zone. And we're certifying as a fund and from now on put us on your radar as a, as a fund. So whether you did that proactively, you've extended your return, you're going to do it before September, or you're thinking, man, I just checked the maps and we're in the zone. Let's say that you've owned the property since 2000 and you're in a zone. I would, even if that were the case, I would go back and amend your tax return, check the box and now, if you want to solicit new investors, you're already a qualified opportunity zone fund. And if you're not, you're not going to get the treatment anyway. And you checked a box and filled out a form, and it was five extra minutes of work. But um, that's if I, one of my clients is telling me, hey, someone wants me to invest in this qualified opportunity zone, I'd say, let me see the tax return. I want to see that they checked the box. I want to see that they filled out the form. I want to see that the numbers are right. Because all of that, is not right, and they're probably not the qualified opportunity zone. Right. So, you know, there's with everything else in real estate, heck, I'm in Florida, so you can imagine, <laughs> you know, I got, I got a, a nice piece of swamp land to sell you. You know, I can just see people come by and saying, oh, yeah, I'm a qualified opportunity zone. Sure. And then you go, okay, here's a million bucks, and you find out they didn't do all the steps, they didn't self certify, and the IRS goes, no, you're not. And then, then it's, it gets ugly, right? So, that's why they put those little steps in there so people like me can go, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you know, let me see the tax return. Let me make sure they did all the right things. Let me make sure they self-certified. And then if I see that's true, go, okay, well, yeah, then, then you should go for this. If you believe in the property, this is a qualified opportunity zone, you're going to get the tax benefits. So, yeah. How hard is it for like a sole proprietor to fill out the paperwork to be a certified qualified opportunity zone fund? Well, the only problem with it is, is that there are several calculations that you have to maintain to be in compliance with this. So there's two different approaches. If you have a fund that owns a piece of property, the rules state that 90% of the fund's assets have to be qualified opportunity zone property. And so on that initial election, you have to state the assets of the fund and whether or not they're qualified opportunity zone assets and then calculate that percentage to be in compliance. To get even more complicated on top of that, qualified opportunity zone property is generally speaking any tangible or real property that's used in a business that's located in a qualified opportunity zone. And by the way, a business includes renting commercial real estate or developing commercial real estate. 
but cash technically isn't a qualified opportunity zone asset. Neither is investments in other entities or um, stocks, bonds, notes, things of that nature. However, cash can be a qualified opportunity zone asset if it's earmarked for working capital and you have a plan. So you see how this gets sort mm-hmm. of complicated. I mean, you go, okay, I bought, I've got $2 million of gain. I put it into a fund. I bought a million dollar piece of property. I'm going to spend this next million dollars upfitting it and doing it, whatever. If you go to the, the calculation, you say, well, I've got a million dollars of cash and a million dollars of property. I don't have 90%. I fail. I'm not going to, this isn't going to work. If you don't know the rules, you go, okay, well, my cash is really working capital. So now I have 100% of qualified opportunity zone assets. But if you're going to call it working capital, you have to have a working capital plan. There's all these requirements. I mean, the IRS creates a mousetrap when they do this, right? Because, again, <laughs> the joke about Florida, they know real estate. And then there's going to be a lot of people out there going to be trying to be really creative, and they want to have some enforcement capability with this. So each year you have to measure your assets and make sure they're within that 90% category. And if you fail, you can lose your status. So my, my short answer to that, which I, I fully admit is a self-serving answer, this is probably not something that a sole practitioner or a non-tax preparer expert should fill out on their own. Because if you're talking about deferring $2 million a gain and you screw up one little thing, yeah, that's a big that, deal. That, could, that could get ugly, right? Right. So again, self-serving comment, but you know, I, I would not recommend it. Okay. Because what, of the can you talk a little bit about what qualifies as a QOZ besides it being in an opportunity zone? What qualifies a real estate investment? Is it just buying the property or do I have to do some improvement? Like what, what, what does that look like? Great point. So for real estate, there is a substantial improvement requirement. So you have to buy the property and then you have to substantially improve the property. And what that means is you have to substantially improve the property to the extent of the gain that you put in, right? So if you have a $2 million gain and you put it into a qualified opportunity zone property, then generally speaking, you have to improve that property to the same tune of $2 million over a period of 31 months. Now, this gets a little bit tricky because property has a, a land component and a building component. So if we just go through a quick example, let's say we shelter $2 million of gain into a qualified opportunity zone fund that owns real property, commercial property we're going to rent or, or substantially improve. And let's say the land value is, you know, 500000 and the building value is $1.5 million. I know that's backwards, but let's just use that as an example. Then that $1.5 million that we invest into the building that's part of our gain has to be essentially doubled and substantial improvements over 31 months. The the code does say that you cannot substantially improve land. So land is sort of out. And you also, you can't buy land only and substantially improve it and then rent it out and it be a qualified opportunity zone investment. Now you can use, so, so for instance, if you have a piece of property and you use that, it's a piece of raw land, use that to operate a market where you have a Saturday market, people come and sell their wares, they pay you rent, that is a qualified opportunity zone business. But if you buy a piece of property and you substantially improve it and you just, you don't, it has no, 
it has no function, no operating function, it's not a qualified opportunity zone business. It has to be a business. And again, rental real estate is a business. So I kind of went all over the board there, but let me circle back and say that there is a substantial improvement requirement. It's 31 months from the time that you purchased a property you have, and you essentially have to take the gain that you deferred and invest that into additional improvements. So in our example, $2 million of gain, half a million to land, a million five to building. That means we have to spend another million five substantially improving the building. And if that building just was rented out to a company for headquarters, to retail, to whatever, then we've met the standard. Okay. So I'm going to throw another one at you that's related because I think this ties in. Say you did buy the property in 18. However, you bought it in a LLC that owns 500 other properties, which was probably not a great idea anyways, but you didn't, you didn't realize it was going to be, <laughs> you didn't ever, you never thought it was going to be in an OZ at that point. So you come along to 19 and you're like, well, I bought that property in 18. I really want to build, it's a vacant piece of property. I'd like to build, as you said, income producing property on it an income producing building. What, is there a way to, to make that work? Yeah. So in, in what I would do in that situation is I would contribute that property to a new LLC and get it out of the group. So I had the same exact issue with one of my clients. They have a portfolio of properties, most of which are in opportunity zones, but they have three large properties that are not. And those three large properties would foul my calculation. So we had to do some restructuring to separate the opportunity zone properties from the traditional properties because again, I'm trying to get that 90% and I can't do it if I've got those other non-opportunity zone properties in there. So in your situation, um, that's the flexibility of partnerships is I would just take that property out of the partnership or out of the LLC, put it into a new LLC, and then self-certify that as a qualified opportunity zone. Okay. Yeah, that's a great answer. I appreciate you clarifying that. What if he yep. bought that? property in the opportunity zone and it was he didn't buy it with capital gains money is there anything you can do there or this is best option to sell it as a qoz opportunity well i mean there is one little thing you can do which you know you can sell that property and then invest back into it like so long roll as you're into not the more fund. than a 20 percent owner right so let's say that i bought the property in february of 18 and you came along, and I realized I didn't buy that with capital gains, so I'm not eligible for the QOZ treatment. And you come along, and you say, I want to invest in your property. You can say, why don't, I can say, why don't you buy it from me for you know, $2 million, and then I can put 20% back into your deal, and that gain I generated by selling it to you, I can use that as qualified opportunity zone. Wow. But I can only be 20% because there's some related party rules that would say if you're over 20%, it's a related party sale and you, you foul the qualified opportunity and zone. And it's 20% of the total funds raised in the QOF. Is right. that right? Right. So let's say, let's say in my example that I bought the property, not you, for $2 million, and you come along and want to invest, and I say, I'll sell it to you for $3 million. And so I got a million dollars of, of gain in it. Well, I can flip that property to you, and if you happen to have a portfolio that is, you know, one million divided by twenty percent, so uh, 
Yeah, five million. Thanks. <laughs> the podcast guy doing the math. This is, uh, <laughs> hey, it is. It is April seventeenth. So you are a little yes, tired. Yes, yes. I'm shocked I can even have this podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, my brain's so fried now. So if you happen to be assembling other properties. Uh, and you have a $5 million portfolio that's all qualified opportunities. I'm like, take that entire million dollars and put it into your fund as a qualified opportunity zone investor and get pay no capital gains on that gain I just generated, which, by the way, would be short term at the highest rates. So pay no capital gains on that. And then if we ever if you ever sell the fund, I get my 20 percent tax free. Beautiful. So if you said the only piece of property I'm buying is yours. And you have a three million dollar fund, then I can only put six hundred grand in that fund, and the other four hundred thousand dollars, I've got to find gotcha. another fund or yeah. or do something else with. So everyone who has property in an opportunity zone can roll it in to a QOF, as long as they're under twenty yeah. percent, right? And they'd have to sell it. Right. They'd have to sell it to somebody outside and generate gain. And that's the problem is I've had a lot of clients that have been trying to figure this out for property they already own. For which they did not come in with, you know, capital gain right. proceeds, and you know that that related party rule is there for a reason. And when you again, when you start talking about some big numbers and some really favorable tax treatment, it is it's, you're you're better to err on the side of caution there. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? You know, I've got real estate guys that are they've got whiteboards and we're putting up you know all sorts of diagrams. Like, what do we do this and do this and I'm thinking, guys, these are big numbers and they're generous tax benefits. We really need to play by the rule of the law. And the, and it does allow you to invest back into something just not over 20%. Yeah, that's fair. So there'd be no way to flip it to someone and then buy it back. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because you're going to hear a lot of those conversations. Well, I'll sell it to you for $3 million, and then I'll buy it back from you six months later. And then I've generated gain. I own the whole thing. And it's a qualified opportunity zone fund. You're toast yeah. at the IRS. You're toast. Yeah. For sure. What does the, the timeline look like for both a QOF, like a qualified opportunity fund, and a QOZ? Because I think those are two different numbers. Can you talk a little bit about those timelines? Right. So the qualified opportunity zone funds, well, let's talk about the qualified opportunity zone first. The qualified opportunity zone, I, I believe that that sunsets in 2026 with that gain. I'd have to go back and confirm that, but I believe that sunsets in 2026. So if you haven't made an investment by then, unless it gets extended, I think you're sort of out of luck. The fund can live on beyond that, of course, and because at this point, when you invest in a qualified opportunity zone fund, which is the fund that holds the property, you have to hold it for 10 years in order to get 100% gain exclusion. And of course, 10 years from now is well past 2026. Right. And again... I've got to go back and confirm this, but I think that difference is you've got to get in now and you can hold it for much longer than that. But the, the window to get this treatment, not that it's closing. I mean, we have another seven years, but it's not like this is a permanent tax break. Yep. It, it will expire. So like, uh, what's the timeline? Like if I generate a capital gain today, how long do I have to identify an opportunity to purchase it? And then also, how long do I have to make those substantial improvements that we talked about that you have to do to qualify it? Yep. So uh, this is where a qualified opportunity zone fund can be much more advantageous than a 1031 tax-free exchange. 
especially with the state of cost of the commercial real estate, and maybe I'm talking Florida talk, and uh, but certainly down here it's quite heated. And so the, the problem with the 1031 right now is you sell your property and you have 180 days to identify and close on another piece of property in order to defer that gain. Well, 180 days is not very long for you to find a property, negotiate a price, go through a purchase agreement, go through due diligence. That's not long at all. And in the past with 1031s, you can get yourself caught in, I just sold a really nice piece of property for a gain. I got to hurry up and buy something and buy it not right and buy it in a way that probably doesn't make economic sense or I wouldn't ordinarily buy it just to get the tax benefits. So let's talk about a qualified opportunity zone fund, though. If you have a qualified opportunity zone fund that owns property, or if you have any any partnership or LLC that owns property, you as the partner don't necessarily know when your LLC sells the property, right? Right. So maybe you're completely passive, and maybe all you get is a K-1 at the end of the year saying, hey, we sold some property. So what the qualified opportunity zone allows you to do is if you're in a partnership, an LLC with somebody, and you sell a piece of property, your 180-day measurement date doesn't start when you sell the property. It starts at the end of the year. What the IRS says is you may not know that the partnership sold a piece of property. So we're going to give you until the end of the year. So let's do let's, – that sounds vague. Let's do two examples. You and I own a piece of property together. We sell it January 5th of 2019. We have 180 days in a like-kind exchange to find a new piece of property and close on it. So we've got until July 5th. Now, you and I are in an LLC together and we sell a piece of property and we want to do a qualified opportunity zone. Well, we have 180 days from 12-31-19. So now we have until June 1 of 2020, almost 18 months, Mm. to take that money, invest it in a qualified opportunity zone, buy property, which, again, if you think about it, 18 months gives you the time to find the right piece of property for the right price, do your due diligence, negotiate a fair deal, go through a purchase agreement, all that kind of stuff. So for my real estate investor clients, that time is a big deal. And, you know, that's a perfect example, right, because you sell it in January. But even if you sell it in June, we have 12 months, right? You're, so – you're always going to have more time in a qualified opportunity zone fund investment than in a 1031. And in this market, again, at least down here in Florida, you can find yourself in a, in a situation where you're buying property that's not economically the right price just to get tax benefits. So a QO zone gives you more time to do that. So let's say that we, we sell that property January 5th and we start a qualified opportunity zone fund and we locate property the following January, and we, we get a plan to improve it and invest in it. Well, we've, we're way ahead of the game in terms of the time frame, but now we have a new clock that starts, and that's the substantial improvement clocks. So we found a piece of property. It's in the zone. We're, we're within that 180 days from year end. We've filed the, the form, and we've checked the box as, yes, we're a qualified opportunity zone fund. Now, day one after all that, we have to figure out we need to substantially improve this property to the extent of our gain that's in, allocated to the building. And we have 31 months to do that. So we have less than three years to complete that substantial improvement project. Uh, and so that's sort of the next, the first clock is 
you know, generating the gain and getting your money into a qualified opportunity zone fund in the requisite time. And again, typically if done through an LLC, that's 180 days after year end. The next clock that starts is now you're in the fund. Now you've bought the property. Now you've met the rules. Now we have 31 months to improve the property. So as long as we do that, once the 31 months are up and we've improved the property, the property can just sit there and be a commercial rental or a mixed-use retail or whatever and just operate as a business. Uh, at that point, there's no other requirements. The only requirement would be that to continue on after that substantial improvement, we have to continue to have in that fund 90% of our assets in qualified opportunity zone property. So we can't go buy another piece of real estate not in a qualified opportunity zone. Or we can't have a bunch of cash in the entity that's not earmarked for working capital. So after the 31 months, the only maintenance is, do we have 90% of our assets in a qualified opportunity zone? And if we have excess cash, do we have a working capital plan for it? And that's measured at the end of every year to give, let's say, the, the, um, the commercial rental cash flows very nicely. When you simply make profit distributions to get that cash down. If you, have, you don't have a need for it and you don't have a working capital plan for it, you make distributions to get that cash down. So when you measure at the end of the year, you have the right percentage to continue to qualify for the opportunity zone benefits. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that was a great overview. So basically you have 180 days to move the capital into the fund or purchase an asset. And then you have up to 31 months with the QOF mm -hmm. once you put together like a improvement plan or a working mm -hmm. capital That's plan. Correct. That's correct. And again, uh, so the first set of, the way this goes, the first set of internal revenue code came out last year. The code is a very broad, sort of here are the rules, but it's very broad. The regulations are what is written after the code. They've done a one set that has been proposed and they're still talking about. There's still a final set to be issued. And typically in regulations, the great thing about the regulations is they go through examples. And so it's very clear how to, how to comply with this. So we're still waiting for those final regulations to come out and give us all the guidance and, and answer some of the specific questions that you know I still have, some of our clients still have. But I think in the coming months, we're going to get those final regulations and then the rules and the, and the way you play the game will become very clear. So just, I'm just saying there's still some uncertainty as to how to completely comply with this, uh, but that's going to become clear very soon. This wouldn't be much of a podcast if we didn't ask you what questions you're still waiting to get clarified? The one question that I still have waiting to get clarified is, let's say you have a parcel. There's two pieces of property on that, but it's an undivided parcel. You have an improved portion and an unimproved portion. Let's say it's a, a city block that's you know an acre, an acre in size, and there's a building that's already improved on half of it, and then there's just vacant land on the other half. If I build a new building on the other unimproved half, does that qualify substantial improvement? Does the whole parcel? Because the other parcel was already improved prior to the qualified opportunity zone. So that's one of the big questions in my mind is, can you take a parcel like that and improve the remaining piece and qualify for this? The other one that's a big question in my mind is, um, what happens to the assets that are already in the fund um, that have been in the fund forever. So let's say you have a fund that um, owns real estate from 2015 and you want to substantially improve it. The property that's already there, does that count for the calculation or does it not? 
um, that 90% calculation. That's still not exactly clear. That's probably more a situation for qualified opportunity zone businesses versus real estate, but it's still not clear to me as well. So I'm hoping that when they have these final regulations, there's some clarity, but for that first one, the, the parcel that's half unimproved and half improved, I would doubt that's going to be in the regulations. That's probably going to be something that gets either a private letter ruling or IRS general counsel advice or perhaps even litigation because that's pretty specific. But I have a client that has that very issue right now, yeah. and we just don't have any guidance on it at this point. Yeah, that's an interesting question too because I, I see your point on that first on the first part of that. You would think if you made the necessary improvements per the breakdown of land and building, you would think that you're qualifying, but yeah, I can see that being a bit of a question mark. Yeah. And you don't really want to subdivide that property because then you have a whole host of other tax issues if you do that. Right. So that really wasn't made clear, I think, in the initial run. But that's, I mean, these things are never perfect. That's why they put out proposed regulations and they ask people for comments because they want to know what are we missing here? What are the things should we tackle or address in these regulations? So, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe they will address that specific situation, but that that's definitely one on our radar. Well, I'm guessing they're listening to this intently and they're going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Can you, uh, can you talk to us about two things? Can you talk to us about leveraging on, uh, on the fund as far as the improvements or on the acquisition and also about refinancing on these properties within it? Right. So leverage is fine in a qualified opportunity zone fund, obviously. We only count the assets. We don't count the debt. So again, if we bought a piece of property for $2 million, which was all the gain we had generated from our Apple stock, obviously we can't improve it unless we put more money in, right? right? So we could use debt for that substantial improvement as long as we actually spend the requisite amount to improve it. So debt is fine. Uh, refinancing is fine as well. Obviously, the only situation that refinancing could make difficult is if there's cash coming back. And if there's no working capital plan for that cash, it could foul our 90% calculation. And of course, with refinancings, not to get too into the tax stuff here, but uh, if we refinance and take cash out, you say, well, we got excess cash. It's not for working capital. Let's distribute it. Well, that could come with some other tax problems as well. So, you know, we if we build this property, we put three and a half million dollars into it, and now all of a sudden it's worth six, and we can refinance for five million and take our equity, take our equity out. Um, you got to be careful about that. Two million dollars of cash comes in the qualified opportunity zone fund. Now we're going to distribute it because it's not a working capital asset. It'll foul our calculation. But can we? Do we have the basis to do that? Or are we yeah. going to generate gain because we don't have enough basis to do that? So it's just something that has to be planned out well in advance. That's actually one of the key differences between 1031s and qualified opportunity zone funds. The deal with 1031s was always that um, you do a tax-free exchange, and then a couple months later you do a refinance and you take some cash out. And that doesn't, that doesn't foul the 1031. Uh, and the, the cash can sit in the in the 1031 fund if you want. No, that's not a problem. For a qualified opportunity zone fund, that is a problem. And that's one of the main differences between the two. 
The other difference I would say, which is probably not necessarily, maybe not necessarily for everyone in this audience, but obviously with a 1031 fund, it's any property in the U.S. And with a 1031 fund, it can also be foreign property. So a qualified opportunity zone fund does not work in Costa Rica. It does not work anywhere outside the U.S. It's within the U.S. It's within certain zones. So, I mean, it's not like the qualified opportunity zone is just hands down better than 1031. There are situations where each works. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that I wanted to ask you. That, that's a good definition of why a 1031 can be more productive. Yeah, I didn't realize that a refi might trigger some issues. I thought you could pull cash yeah. out with a QOZ fund. Yeah, and I mean, it, it wouldn't, I don't know that it would tr uh, uh, trigger issues with a QOZ fund, but just the basic income tax basis rules, you could have some problems there. Yeah. If you go through a quick example, if you've got some losses because you're in startup, but you've taken some basis to take those losses, you may not have enough left to take all the cash out. If you don't take the cash out, now you have more than 90% or less than 90% of your assets in a qualified opportunity zone fund. And now you're not a qualified opportunity zone fund anymore. So it just, it's, it's something that has to be planned out. Can you double down by another property with that refi money <laughs> you could. in the QOA? You could, you could. You talked a little bit about these opportunity zones tracks. How can investors find where the opportunity zones are in their market? Like what's the best way? Uh, this is going to sound really, <laughs> uh, really silly, but to be honest with you, I just Googled Pinellas County Opportunity Zones, and the Pinellas County webpage came up that shows a map, and it shows all the different census tracts and where they are on the map. So I don't know if there is one federal page that aggregates yeah. all these codes, or all these zones, rather. But I've been doing it on a county-by-county county basis. So Pinellas County is where I am in, in Florida. It's uh, St. Petersburg and Clearwater. Hillsborough County is Tampa. So uh, I've just been Googling Hillsborough County Opportunity Zones, and the county puts out a map and designates exactly where they are for you on the map. Fantastic. So that's probably the first place I'd start. Okay. Fantastic. What do you see as kind of like the best target investments? whether it's developments or heavy value add or even operating businesses, what do you see as the best target investments for QOZs? Well, I mean, from my perspective, this is just a great commercial play because of that double dip aspect and just a commercial play front to back, right? It can be build a suit for a company. It could be retail. It could be, you know, it could be even manufacturing or warehousing. If you're a real estate investor out there who wants to do a build-to-suit or a build-it-and-they-will-come type mixed-use project, you can go out to people and say, if you occupy this space, I'm getting tax benefits and you're getting tax benefits. Yeah. So I have um, guys that are out there going, how can I attract maybe a big corporate headquarters to an opportunity zone and build them out a nice facility and lease it to them? And then... If they, if they headquarter their company in that opportunity zone, the company gets tax benefits and the landlord owner gets tax benefits when they exit. I mean, that's just very compelling to people that I'm going to build you a, a very nice space built to suit. And by the way, you're going to get tax benefits. Yeah. I mean, we just moved into our office uh, a year and a half ago and no one gave me tax benefits to move in here. <laughs> I wish they would have. Are you looking uh, for a new space? 
<laughs> Hopefully my landlord is not listening to this podcast. <laughs> I might be in trouble. But that's the compelling part of it is being able to attract businesses that will for nothing less than moving their facilities or maybe enlarging what they already need to do to enlarge facilities, get some tax benefits for it. What are and, you the- know, most people don't want to manage the real yeah. estate process either. So we manage the real estate process. We'll build the suit. We'll build the building. We'll maintain it for you. You guys will need more space. All you do is relocate to this area, and you're going to get tax benefits. Is it that simple? Like it's just a relocation for a business for an existing business, and then they can be a QOZ? So, I mean, I say it's that simple. Um, they have to go through the same calculation. For a qualified opportunity zone business, their standard is lower. It's 70% of qualified opportunity zone assets. But it's the same exact calculation. Their real and tangible property used in their business has to be 70%. So um, let's say a, let's, there's a popular one. A brewery is located somewhere in northern Pinellas in my county. And they want to relocate to an opportunity zone in southern Pinellas. Well, if they relocate their entire facility, their manufacturing, all that kind of stuff, even if they sell all throughout Florida and all throughout Georgia and North Carolina and the southeast, their headquarters and their manufacturing facility and their business is located in a qualified opportunity zone. And as long as they meet that 70% standard, then they are a qualified opportunity zone business. And so when the shareholders of that business or the partners in that business sell the business, if they came in with, you know, capital gain proceeds, they would leave with no capital gains, essentially. Uh, But relocating is another area that we still need some more guidance on from the regs in terms of what is the guidance if you have a business that's already been started and how are those owners treated that were there before 1231. So that, that's one I left off. That's another thing that we need a little bit more guidance on is how do you treat a relocating business. But for the most part, from what I've read, I believe that's an opportunity for a business to relocate into the zone and get tax benefits. But we're talking on a podcast. seems very easy. It's not yeah. quite that easy. Right. What would you think about – what are some things you've already heard or some, I don't know, examples or just ideas that you've said – I think that's a way, that's something you should steer away from as far as trying to get it involved in an opportunity zone. Do you have any do you have any examples of that? I mean, the only opportunity or the only examples I would say are ones where people are kind of pushing the envelope and saying, "Why don't we do a sale lease back and why don't we try and get around this 20% related rule?" The only other ones would be if you have property that you want to purchase or develop that's outside the zone that's in foreign jurisdiction obviously you can't use opportunity zone but uh, i haven't really heard any negative from a real estate perspective about opportunity zones other than those two things is you know i don't really want to buy in the zone i've seen the zone around me the other i guess the other negative would be the market knows now and so i had recently i had a business that wanted to purchase the property that was located on to do the real estate play and the business play and the landlord knows and he wants an absurd price for his real estate now. So I think that's starting to creep into the market a little bit. People know they're not opportunity zone. They know there's big tax benefits and they're trying to price up to get that capture that themselves, especially owners that own prior to these rules coming out that are essentially not included in this tax benefit. They're getting their benefits economically. Hmm. From all the structures you've seen, 
What has been your favorite type of real estate deal? Well, I mean, the favorite type is, is that's simple. It's the partnership and using a structure outside of your portfolio. So a lot of these real estate investors have partnerships that hold um, lots of different pieces of property. Each piece of property is owned in what's called an SPE, a special purpose entity. So my favorite deal is isolating the opportunity zone property and, and keeping it away from all the other managed properties, even if they're all in the opportunity zone. Uh, and I think the fund approach is a great one in terms of creating a fund that can go out and solicit investor money to purchase more opportunity zone funds. So I guess it's one thing we didn't mention is if we open an opportunity zone fund and we funded it with $2 million and we bought a piece of property, we're not done. There's another bite to the apple. If we sell some more Apple stock, we can put two more million dollars into that same exact fund and go buy another piece of property. And we could take two friends that sold their Apple stock and put two million dollars more in another piece of property. So it's the fund gives you the opportunity to keep pouring into it so long as you reinvest the proceeds in a timely manner and continue to meet that 90% rule. Mm -hmm. You can continue going back to it and you can create a large fund. And I mean, I know some guys are using this as an income play too, where they're saying, I'll create a fund, I'll solicit investor dollars, I will find the properties, I'll buy them right, and then I'll take a prep interest or a management fee to manage the whole thing in an equity position. And I mean, it's kind of easy from, an, from a pure real estate investor's perspective, not an active real estate investor, but a passive real estate investor. It's sort of nice to say, okay, you did the certification, you're filing the tax returns, you're buying the property, you're managing it, you're substantially improving it. I just want the tax benefits. Right. I don't want to do any of that work. So certainly separate from outside other properties in its own fund, and then using a fund, being able to build on mm-hmm. that and buy multiple properties if you, if you wish. Now, you That's kinda, been the most compelling. You talked about, we're talking about it again, but for those folks that do have um, a property that they bought a property in an opportunity zone, it's, but it's already in an LLC with a bunch of other property and we want to separate it. Is the key is to separate it. How is it to get it standing alone in that existing LLC? So you get every, all the other properties out of that LLC or do you somehow move it into its own LLC? I would start new. Okay. I would start new and move it into its own LLC. So, you know, if it's in a, an LLC with a portfolio of 10 other properties, I would just move it out to a new LLC and just and have that brand new LLC own the property. That's if you already own the property before and you, you haven't got the Opportunity Zone benefits yourself, but you want to have them available to new investors. I pull it out of the portfolio and put it into a separate LLC. And that way, as an investor, I come in and say, well, what's in what is in this LLC? And, you know, whether I have an accounting team or a legal team doing a, you know, cert looking at titles and going online and trying to see what is titled this LLC, I'll see there's only one piece of property. Mm-hmm. It's clearly in the zone. I've checked the box on the tax return. I filled out the forms. All of the due diligence, you know, kind of ties out. Yeah, this is a safe opportunities and investment. You know, go for it. You'll get the benefits. Versus I've got it in there with 10 other properties and, you know, nine of them are in the zone. One isn't, but don't worry, that one's worth less than 10% because we did our own appraisal and said it's only worth 
you know, 600,000. Meanwhile, they bought it for a million too. And, you know, like it just gets messy and it makes the calculation messy. It makes it very easy to screw up these rules and compliance, ongoing compliance with the rules is important. We've got to continue to make sure that we're in compliance with those percentages so as to not foul this calculation. So that's why I say separate it, put it aside and put it in its own entity. Now, if you did put it in its own entity, so you bought the property in 18, you don't care about the purchase price of it in 18. Mm -hmm. All you really care about is getting, is getting credit for the capital gains that you want to contribute to improving it. So could you say, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to break it out of the, the LLC it's in, put it in its own LLC. So it's a standalone. Like you said, it's, it's clearly in an opportunity zone. I, I might not be able to get any credit for the capital gains I spent on purchasing the property, but I'm okay with that. I just want to use additional capital gains to improve it so I can build a structure on it. Yeah, and I would say that's probably another area that's still maybe a little gray. Uh, I think the way you would treat that is you'd look at your basis in the initial purchase and your basis in the improvements, and you have to split them. So, for instance, if you bought the building for $2 million, put it into an opportunity zone fund, and then you generated a million dollars of gain elsewhere and then poured that into the fund, then theoretically two-thirds of your basis in that property would not be qualified opportunity zone, and a third would. So obviously 10, 12 years down the line when you sell that property, it's not going to be 100% gain deferral. It's going to be gain deferral only with respect to the OZ interest. And I don't, I haven't come across that yet. So I'm just theorizing here and it may or may not already be in the regulations, but my guess is you have to split your basis in that property and treat the two different sides differently. And some people might be okay with that speaking for myself. Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still a great deal, right? It's still a great deal. If someone said I, I sold a property for a $5 million gain and I came along and said, I'm going to volunteer to pay a third of your tax. Would you say no? <laughs> of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. All day long. That person would be invited to dinner for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, I know this is going to depend, but how much should an investor expect to pay to set up a QOZ and be in compliance for their first property? Just ballpark. Like, What should they ex- anticipate? Well, I mean, when you're going to set up a property and you're going to set up a fund, obviously you have to do the legal side of that. Mm-hmm. You got to set up a, an LLC. You got to put the company in the LLC. So I won't speak to the costs associated with that. But if you're if you got real estate investors that are listening to this podcast, they probably already have a good feel for that. The incremental cost would be that first tax return that you prepare, having to check the box, having to run the calculation, and I mean. I wouldn't say that's a significant cost. So maybe it's an extra thousand to two thousand dollars in tax prep cost to go through that calculation, go through the balance sheet, make sure that those are really qualified opportunity zone assets are located in a zone, fill out the form and check the box. And that's sort of the initial year. After that, it should be a pretty easy calculation to do ongoing. So you've got your legal setup, which is probably no different than anything else. I mean, other than I know that the code does say that in the articles of organization or the partnership agreement for the entity, it needs to be designated that it's set up for the purpose of being a qualified Mm -hmm. opportunity zone. So, I mean, what's the incremental cost of adding a sentence? I don't know. But 
I will tell you that um, on the tax side, filling out that form, it's not significant, but certainly it's an added cost. A thousand to two thousand dollars, depending on the complexity, is probably somewhere in that ballpark. That sounds reasonable. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time. This has been absolutely awesome um, for our guests. What's the best way for them to learn more about your firm and reach out to you? So our firm is uh, Spore Bunch Franz in St. Pete, Florida. Our website is www.sbfcpa.com. And you can reach me directly at sbunch at sbfcpa.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions your listeners have or help in any way I can. And uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the, on the podcast and talk to you guys and have enjoyed it. We appreciate it as well. And be sure to say hi to that partner of yours, uh, Mr. Warren Gordon. I will. I, I won't call him that, though. <laughs> I won't call him Warren Gordon. Say hi to Dubs for us then. I will. I will. All right, guys. All right. Awesome. Thanks so Enjoy much. It. Thank you. Take care. Good. See you. All right. Bye-bye.